Greg, let me start off by, yeah, first please. of all, thanking you for being here this early time. No worries. Thank you for inviting me. Early time in the morning. And this, where were you born, Greg? Uh, I was born in Chicago, Illinois. Okay. Are you the only child? Uh, no. When my brother was born in Chicago as well, we moved from Chicago to Philadelphia. Um, we, I was born right downtown in the middle of Chicago. Uh, so, city boy from the beginning. Are you the first child or the second? First, but we, my mother had two other, uh, a stillborn and then unfortunately one who had passed away soon after birth. So, yeah, I guess I'm the first. And then you have your brother. So, it's the two of you. Just the two of us. Well, how are mom and dad doing? My father passed away at 10. My mother passed away 2013. Right. And we talked a little bit before, so you, you did get to know your father because you were two yeah, years old. Yeah, I, I mean, yes. And uh, for whatever reason, I have a really strong memory from like day one. So I remember lots of strange things. Uh, and then, you know, my father and my mother divorced. He moved to New York, but it was kind of a light divorce. I think it was more of a separation. Uh, and we would go and visit him, but that was like the last two or three years. So the time in New York when we'd go up, or when he would come down here, my, you know, I had good memories of him. Okay. Yeah. And your brother and you, how far, how many, how many years difference? A uh, year and a half. Are you guys really close? Yeah, but there's two things we know not to talk about, and that's politics and guns. And I won't get into it as to who's okay. on what side. All right. But you guys had some very heated um, debates. Um, once or twice, but I think, you know, you learn from them. Right. I guess you were. I mean, you know, you're, you, you come to respect one another in a different way, you know, you're no longer kids, you know, you, you don't settle anything by wrestling around on the floor. That's right. You have to uh, understand and be open to what your brother is, you know, he's years since he's developed as a, an adult, he's had a different experience and so have I. So. Isn't that interesting? Do, do both of you have children? Yes, he has a, he was married relatively young and he has a daughter who is about 30. I was married relatively late, so I have a, a son who's now 15 as of a week or two ago, and my daughter who's 11. Okay. Oh. Mm. And you've been married only once? Or? Yes. Okay. <laughs> so you, did you answer No, I realized that... Like, the, the, I think <laughs> that would be enough. <laughs> no, 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 no. Yeah, I, I guess that is a, that is a question you should, that comes up. I mean... Yeah, yeah you're always been there. I see you tiptoeing around that. I, why don't we leave that alone and go no, to the next no, no. one? What, yes, what kind of kid were you when you were growing up? Were you more academic or were you more sports-minded? Um, good question. Uh, to be honest, I, I wasn't super into sports at the beginning, but I would say around 10 years old, I think, because uh, I lived in Philadelphia, the... Uh, the hockey team did really well, so everyone was playing street hockey, so suddenly I'm playing street hockey and I was liking it. Then uh, we had the Sixers who were doing well. Uh, I was liking basketball. Uh, Eagles are doing well, so I was liking football. Phillies are doing... So you go from, you know, nothing... But you were doing... You were actually doing the sports, too. Well... When you said you were When I said it. I was a city boy, I meant a, a real city. I mean, you know, we didn't have these lovely, well-groomed... Uh, fields or anything. Fields or anything. We were... You know, in the middle of Philadelphia, there was this there's this plot of land that was, uh, you know, probably houses at one time that they knocked down. So it was a lumpy field. It was very long and very, you know, not so wide. And on one side was a cemetery. Another, and then the, on the side and on the far end was um, a street. And on the far end, you had a trolley that would come down and 
And if you're playing baseball, you'd stop the game and then you'd have the pitcher, okay, if you could hit the trolley, you get a grand slam. So you got to get it over the fence and boom, hit the trolley. But, you know, that was the city boy fun. Okay. <laughs> it's a little different. So you learn to hit and you learn to run the bases and not trip over the, the lumpy field. Right. And if you, you know, you hit the ball into the cemetery, well, that's two, two, two strikes, I think. You had to find the ball. Is that right? Oh, you're right. Because you yeah. had to find the ball. That's one thing. Yeah, yeah. It's also kind of like bad luck. Uh, we didn't think of it that way. I mean, we had a lot of fun in the cemetery, you know, <laughs> Halloween parties and things, you know, you know, we were looking around for things, playing kick the can or whatever. Lots of, in the city, we played a lot of kick the can. Okay. And that was a big deal. And growing up in Philadelphia, especially downtown. Well, that's the game? Because I, I remember kicking. Uh, when uh, I was growing up, we kicked the can, but we didn't make a game. What was the game? Basically, you had... Um, Two people who were the people who had to protect the can, and they would go out, and they would you would hide, and they would see you, and they say, "Hey, I see you, something or other," and you had to run back to the can, and you know, you, you basically it's a race, and you try to beat the guy who's supposed to protect the can, and if he touches the can first, then you're caught, and you have to wait for your other friends to all be caught. But if you beat him and you kick the can, you free anyone who's sitting there who's already been caught. Stupid game it seems, but I tell you, we went late into the night, and we were playing in Philadelphia. We lived. Four or five blocks from Independence Hall, Carpenters Hall, all that stuff. So, you know, in historical parks, they probably would kick us out now, but we were doing that, you know, and it was fun. <laughs> what years are we talking about? What year was oh, this? Oh, that was in the 70s. In the 70s, yeah. okay. Yeah. Well, I was already here. Ah. My father and mother were, um, you know, both of them did not go to college. Both of them uh, were in the magazine industry. They met in early, early 60s. They got married both. My father was married once before. My mother got married late because she was a so-called career woman, but she, you know, she just came up through high school and she just wanted to be an editor, so she went to New York. So they met, they married in New York, uh, and then they moved to St. Louis, to Chicago, as I mentioned, where I was born, and then to Philadelphia. Uh, they were both in the magazine industry. They worked together um, at Hearst Corporation. Uh, Saturday Evening Post in Philadelphia. They, have a, they used to have a massive building, literally right next to, so is there, right next to uh, Independence Hall. And um, then when my father passed away, my mother, who was taking care of us for a couple of years, uh, she had to go back to work. So she contacted the Hearst Corporation, and they said yes to me. They, it was interesting because I reading uh, some letters from my mother to me that she left and she explained that, you know, especially later in their career when they were working together, the employers seemed to value my mother's contributions even more than my father's. So when she was ready to go back to work, they were like, yes, welcome back. Was blah, he an blah, blah. editor too? No, he was on the sales side, selling okay. advertising. Okay. So um, she went back to work for Good Housekeeping magazine in New York. So she was commuting from Philadelphia to New York every day, or basically every day five days a week, sometimes four days a week. So that meant getting up early. She had to get from her house to 30th Street Station to take the train up, then from there, I think, walk down to Hearst or something. So we were shaped by that, which meant, you know, we were, she wasn't around, so it was just me and my brother. We had to learn to cook and what all that stuff. What the children? Where you had the key to the house and you'd be there and you had to do all the stuff yourself? Uh, yeah, but I, to be honest, again, this is a different era. Right. Uh, we just left the door open. <laughs> so That's true. We didn't, have a, we didn't lock the door, which is probably the stupidest thing you could do in retrospect. But you never had any as far as I know, we never had any problems. Wow. Yeah. 
That was a different time. Most, it was most a definitely. And uh, and these are the brownstone homes that are uh, no 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 that's that's more New York okay, the right. center city as they call it uh, where we lived was a historical area that had just gone under became a like a fishmonger area and other I mean it just really went down and um, Kevin Bacon the actor his father was actually a very big city planner in Philadelphia and in the fifties and early sixties he replanned how Philadelphia was going to look and feel. So these buildings that were basically, I mean, literally crumbling, he offered for next to nothing to anyone who wanted to come to the city because people had left the city. Mm -hmm. Okay, so they're he, bringing people back. They had to, you know, they got the, the, the places for next to nothing and they had to rebuild them in a certain way. At the same time, he, you know, where there are places where there is no way to necessarily rebuild, he ran a, a, a walkway system around that led to like Independence Hall and everything. So we rented. So whoever, well, I know the, the owners, uh, it was Quaker owners actually, that they had bought the house and they more or less did it themselves. But it was all um, brick buildings, row houses, brick buildings. and But they're all made into a motif from like 1700s. So I think our the house we lived in was like from 1740 or something like that. So that was interesting. So it was Four, sto four stories and a basement. Okay. And it just went up like this and had not iron stairs like that, but, you know, these wood stairs that they put in. So we were always up and down, up and down. I mean, I just remember that. And it had lots of fireplaces because that's how they used to heat. I mean, originally, that's how they used to heat the houses. So we learned how to make the fires and, and things like that when we were little kids. Um, but that was fun. That okay. was a different experience. So then from there, you go into junior high, high school. Hmm. Would you really start to study? Where were your interests? Um, so I went. To, so I went to a public school in Philadelphia, which I really liked. Um, was it really diverse? I mean, as far as ethnic, it was, ethnic wise. I wish I brought the picture because if you see the picture from uh, actually it was started in kindergarten in '69 or something like that, and uh, you go through the early '70s. I think I left there in '74. It was like the UN. With midgets, you know, gotcha. it was like Little all kids, these. Yeah, right. you, you look and you know, you, we should all hold up a, like which country we were from or something like that. Taiwan, you know, Cambodia. What about the teachers? Well, the teachers are also diverse. We had a a, a much cool. older teacher. We had African American teacher. I mean, and, and these you shape you. I understand because uh, how do I ex because the you know what they're relaying is their experience. So the first things you hear when you're learning, not just about the core curriculum, you're learning about how someone lived that and learned that core curriculum. So it was fun and different. And But I'll be honest, I mean, you know, we, we were in school, but you never looked at anyone like, oh, you're from Taiwan or something. It was, this is my friend. Right. You didn't, I can only, I can relate to it in this respect. When I was in kindergarten, there was mm. a little girl that I liked more than anyone else. Her name was Naomi. Mm. And I was, then fast forward to junior high school. I see her down on the playground, and I used to walk home with her and her grandmother. Mm. I never knew what they were talking about or mm -hmm. what they were saying. Okay, so I'd walk home, and they'd let me walk so far because we everyone walked home, and then they'd break up to the wherever they had to go, and I'd keep on going. Fast forward to junior high school, I look at her, and I see her, and I tell the guy next to me because I was a hall monitor. I said, "You know, that's the little girl. I loved her when I was in kindergarten, but why mm -hmm. didn't she ever grow?" And he says to me, "Most Japanese don't get that tall." And it was like, <laughs> she's Shock. I had no, I had never, I knew who Japanese were, but I yeah. never saw her yeah. as some, as Japanese. 
That's exactly. When she had the prettiest black hair, straight. You grow it with people. You, you just that's don't, not what you you're don't thinking look about. at that. Yeah, that, yeah, yeah. If this guy has big ears, he had big ears. He has big I mean, uh, no lips, whatever it may be. No, no, no. It's, it's true. I mean, we. Uh, then we learn later yes. that we have different categories ah, okay. for people. No, people start teaching you that through well, the media. So and this else. is interesting. So I went to this public school. Um, I remember distinctly, you know, you were talking about different feds. There was one uh, African-American guy, and his name was Jacob Adams. And I, and I thought he was like, oh, he must be like rel related, related to me. Related. We're like brothers. Yeah. We were like good friends. Yeah, we, were just, we didn't really think that, but we kind of thought that. There must be something. And then there was uh, Henry Leong, and he lived in Chinatown, and he was, he was short, but he was the fastest kid. And I'm like, man, I want to be as fast as Henry Leong. And, and it was kind of like when the kung fu movies were quite popular. And mm. I mean, I just remember everyone, everyone in the school wanted to learn kung fu. A little later uh, in the grade school, you know, people started with nunchucks and throwing stars. I like, wait a second, yeah, that's a little too much. But, but this is the way it was, you know. That's true. Yeah, that is so true. But we're so influenced by the the time and the, exactly. the area that we grew up in. Mm. So you get into high school. What did you find yourself focusing on most? So yeah. when my when my mother started going back to work, you know, the first thing was, well, what do I do with the kids? So we went and we left this public school. We went out to live with my grandparents outside of Philadelphia in the suburbs and went to a Catholic school. Okay. So suddenly all, I was... All boys school? No, no, no. no it was not yet. It was, it was mixed, but it was... A mixed Catholic school. Mixed boys and girls. Right. But it was all white. Okay. So suddenly I'm in this school that's all white and I never, and I was shocked and... You know, and that's when you start to hear about other people. Okay, black people are like this, gay people are like that, Chinese people are like this. Wait a second. And I was really like, I was not happy. Not happy at what all. What grade was this? What grade did you go? Uh, you uh, I think it was, yeah, it was third, fourth. Half oh, a third really and half early. a fourth. Oh, really? oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. So then, you know, my mother realized we did not, I mean, my, you know, we lived with my grandparents. That was fun. It was actually good to spend some time with them. Um, and it was a suburban life, so it was more outdoor stuff, riding bikes and things like that. We couldn't really do that so much in the city. There just wasn't places to ride a bike to. So we went back to Philadelphia, but since we had started in the Catholic school, my mother then put us into a local Philadelphia Catholic school, which was, again, very diverse. It was from uh, different parishes from around the city of Philadelphia, you know, a long time ago when there's lots, the population of Philadelphia was probably, you know, almost double what it had been. There was lots of churches that had their own schools, but slowly they were closing their schools, so they were sending them. But it was a really small school. There was one class for each grade, and they had no place to play, so we would play on the roof, and the roof was just an open space, so you play, you know, you have a tennis ball or, you know, something you can bring up and down with you. Because that was good. And then from there, uh, you know, you're, it was a good experience. It was a nice mix of Catholic and public, uh, diverse. Was this also still co-ed? Also still co-ed. Okay. Um, and then I went to, uh, I took a test and got into a Jesuit school, an all-boys Catholic high school. Just you? Did your brother go as well? Uh, he did, okay. briefly. All right. That's a different story. All right. So... Uh, so anyway, I, I, I did that, and I think there were, in my class, there were four people that got into the, if I remember correctly. No, wait, so, no, what grade did you change to go into that? Were you like in junior high now? Or? So in, in Philly, it's, um, 
first through eighth is uh, elementary school. Okay. Thinking in Japanese. Right. So then from ninth through twelfth, you go to high school. And that's okay, just right. the, the I know it's so different in different parts of the, right. the country. So then when I went there, so I got in and, you know, is, is my best friend going to get in or not? Because I knew his grades were always a little bit, but he got in. Okay. He got it. He, he just passed the test and he got in. So we went in and, and that was fun. And that's completely different because now it's all boys school. Again, it's very diverse. Uh, lots of people from all over the place, including New Jersey, because New Jersey is right across the river from Philadelphia. And um, it was really strong in sports. Uh, it's now extremely strong in sports, especially football, which it was decent when I was there, but now it's one of the top programs in the country. They've developed a school, I'm sure, too. Made it bigger? Uh, not necessarily. Not necessarily? They okay, just, it's already been. Okay. Because the experience is really good. I mean, it's, again, all-boys school, so it's a different experience, but they really focus on education and life education and, you know, how to treat people and, you know, do be successful, but really at the same time you take care of the other people. And again, the teachers are diverse as well? Yes. Okay. Uh, they had lay teachers, as they would call them, and people from, from the, the cloth. Church. Yeah, yeah, right. yeah. Okay. And both were very diverse. We had some women. Uh, we had a sister. It was interesting because the sister, what was her name? I can't remember. Really nice lady, but she was teaching us sex education. It was always a... Did she wear a habit? No, no. no okay. That was um, post-habit time. Okay. Although when I was back in the, in the suburbs, when I went to that first Catholic school, that was... Oh yeah, the habits were still in but effect. You know, I just I saw, two, I saw two nurses yesterday. Hands. Oh, oh yeah. We're in habits. Two, oh yeah. yeah. Right there's, by there's, there's a because there's Sacred Heart right exactly. around the corner. Exactly. Yes, exactly. I know, right. and they still they're still in habits. Well, oh. I mean, you know, things change, I guess. <laughs> and uh, things don't change too. <laughs> they don't change too. Just because they're not wearing a habit doesn't mean they can whack that's you right. over the, the knuckles with oh, the ruler. But that's what happened to me. That's my father put me in the Catholic <laughs> school. No, I'm serious. I went up there, and the teacher. Did, I didn't tell you this last time. No, I can only. He imagine. puts me in the cat. He puts me in the cat. Saint Agnes, I'll never forget it. Mm. I'll never forget you, Saint Agnes. I go there, and the teacher says in the class, I must have been about eight years old. She says, "Who to all the kids? Who made God?" Huh. How to get here, Lance? I raised my hand. She says, "Lance," and I said, "He made himself." And she says, "Come up here." <laughs> so put your hand out. Now I had had no experience of ever having anything like this. She said, "Put your palm up like this." And she took out a ruler and just hit me as hard as she could with it. And she said, "That's ridiculous. Nobody knows who made God." Ooh. And I thought you got punished. For it. It? Yes, <laughs> it wasn't she just she was told like, you? She just wanted to get something off her chest, and she—I don't yeah. care. That made me so bad. I came home. When I got home, I said, Dad, I'm done. You oh. can't do this. Nope. Take you left? me back in the public. No, I uh. didn't leave. I didn't. <laughs> no, she would have beat me half to death. No. Yeah. But when I did get home, I told yeah. Dad, we can't do this. Hmm. Catholic school is Okay, not you left the Catholic school? I sure did. Okay. Yeah. But you stayed in. It was a really good place. I, I, didn't, I didn't, you know, I, I left that Catholic school, and I had a good experience after that in the city Catholic school. Um, you left the one that your grandparents had you in. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then yeah, when yeah. you come, came when back, I was your mother the, put you in the other school. The one in the city, was which all was... Boys. No, 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 that was high school. So the one in the city was uh, very diverse, co-ed, very small, one class, uh, one class per grade. And it was good. I mean, I mean, we didn't... I didn't even think of it too much as a Catholic school. We had to go to church. We had to, I think, once or twice a week, you had your religious studies, if I remember. But it was more on everything else. So I, I, I didn't... Well, it, was it was good. So you go to high school, you go through Catholic school, you start doing good in school. Yeah. What were you, what were you headed towards? Um, 
you know, I Had tell this. About to, it? I, oh yeah, I, you tell. I, I told this to uh, the kids that I met with from my graduate school, from the undergraduate part of my graduate school, who came to Japan a couple weeks ago. Um, I always knew I wanted to do something with cars. I mean, literally, at first day, boop, pop out cars. I don't know why. Don't know why. You know, it's one of these things. It's it's so deep in you. And, you know, somebody can say, "I like to do X because of something." I don't know. It's just part of me. So what kind of okay? So growing up, what kind of things? If I were to come to see your home and see your area, your private stuff, what would I see around it that would indicate that you like cars? Um, I I used to I wanted to be a car designer. Okay, so and I had all these. I went to these car shows and I liked a lot of pamphlets and things. Uh, for a brief time, I was making some model cars. You know, and I. And at the Philadelphia Civic Center, they had a one of the MPC or one of the manufacturers of the model car kits had a right. contest. So I put a couple of cars in there, and I, and I was ten years old, and I got third place. You know, I, I, you it was up. good. I, I think they were good, but they weren't that good, but good enough. You know, we were putting the engine well, wires to, with uh, thread and things, so it was a little bit of detail. And you had to paint it too. Oh yeah, yeah, that, of course, yeah. yeah. What, but, what was your, what was the car you did this to? Now, the one at one was a thirty-two Ford, which. No, I wasn't really in. To be honest, it was. I wanted to try something different, and I made the thirty-two Ford. I kind of like foreign cars a little bit more than the, than not. And the reason for that is because living in the city, we did not have a car, so we always had to rent a car if we wanted to go somewhere. So I was rented from Hertz, which was a Ford typically. <laughs> so we didn't like GM. Uh, I liked Ford a lot. Uh, Grand Torinos, Torinos, and uh, LTDs. I think is what the LTD, my father was always getting. You know. Um, but the Thunderbird was nice. Too. Th we got a Thunderbird once in every while. Wow, but they didn't not, have too many was, of those. Yeah. Sure did. Oh. Yeah. So anyway, I, I I just wanted to do something with cars. I was thinking, you know, car design. So, but you know, you go through high school and you're not yet thinking about your career as much as you're thinking about what you need to learn that to get to that next level to get into college. So uh, yeah, I did that. And um, what else? I I was. Uh, as I said, that's the time period where I got into the local sports, so therefore we're doing lots of street sports. Never an organized team, except for... But it was in high school? Yeah. Well, street sports, what do you mean street sports? Mm, like, street hockey, street basketball, when we, we would go to the local you know, schoolyard or something and we'd play, uh, like I told you about the baseball, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. football, uh, play. Yeah, you, need, you, you make up rules and then... But the point was, you, you got outside, and you got outside even when there was not a lot of necessarily grass around or something. But you would, you know, make good. So the school didn't have the school didn't have the facilities, or did um, set up for that. So the yeah the the elementary school I went to, they only had the space on the roof, the roof so we had right. nothing. So we had the the other local mm, Episcopalian school that had the graveyard that had one basketball <laughs> hoop that never had a net, you know, stuff like that. You never know if it really went in or not, that kind of thing. But, it depends on how you look at it. But, but what happened was you had these like neighborhood teams. So you'd end up playing against you know the neighborhood team from three or four blocks away that they always played together. I remember we went to that public school that I originally went to, and they had a massive schoolyard parking lot. We had this one. It was going to be us that we always played street hockey with against them. And the guy who was the goalie, though, he would play with us and play with them. So he played half the game with him in our goal and half the game he was in the other goal. But it was intense. And I remember, you know, we had the boom box and we were listening to tunes as we were playing. And it was, you know, we were getting up for it for weeks. So we we're going to go play these guys. going to be on the Saturday. But it was just kids. It was it's nothing organized. You guys but had planned it yourself and everything. 
Some, yeah. well, somebody had to be the communicator to say, hey, we're going to play against this other team. It's probably the goalie. Because yeah, okay. he's always... <laughs> I don't remember. Because I'd be able to do both teams, yeah. Yeah, but it, but it was fun. And, it, and really, those kids were, were wonderful. Is yeah. that right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So no fights broke out or anything like that? I mean, no, there were verbal fights. No, we there? never had any fight. There was a lot, a lot of words said, but I, I, I have to say that there was never really any fighting. That's neat, because my era was different. My era, they came up and they started. We would fight, but it wasn't the violence you start seeing later. We, oh, have, yeah. it. we have it without any other instruments. <laughs> it was just ourselves. Not that we didn't have fights. Right. That we, that, you know, Philadelphia is... Um, is a wonderful city, and I don't know how, really how it is now, but it had lots of its own neighborhoods, right? Polish neighborhood, Italian neighborhood, now there's a Vietnamese neighborhood, a black neighborhood, uh, German neighborhood, mixed neighborhood, whatever. So people are walking through each other's territory. Someone would, would be bound to say something. <laughs> That's about it, though. Bound to say something. And uh, the, the two streeters in Philadelphia, there were, it was a, a bunch of Irish kids. I'm part Irish myself, but mm. they, you know, but I say it's Irish because they were mostly Irish, but they were most, more importantly, they were two streeters. They're from Second Street. And they, when they would walk through the neighborhood to go home, words were said. And sometimes, you know, a few sometimes, of those. You had a few of those sometimes. I remember, too, there was uh, these black girls that came through our neighborhood, and we were playing something, hockey or something. And they said something to one of my friends, and like, hey, and they wanted to get into a fight. They, meaning my friends and these girls, and they literally, there was a fist fight with these girls, and they got their, my friends got their butts whooped. Because these girls came, they came Because they fights. never fought, probably, right. But, right. but, I mean, you know, it was never serious. There was never any instruments of destruction. Right, was, right, exactly. Same it was words and, and, right, right. and fisticuffs. Fisticuffs. Right, but right, right. not even that much, because in the end, you know, you're laughing with these right. girls or with the two streeters or whatever it was. So That's it was. So you go to college. From high school, yeah. you're thinking seriously, okay, now I'm going to go to college. Now, what am I going to study? What happened then? Uh, so then, you know, like I said, my mother and father never went to college. The only person in my immediate family at that time that went to college was my, uh, one of my uncles, okay? And so we didn't know anything about On your mother or father's it. side? On my mother's side. Okay. So we didn't know anything about college. Yeah, like my mother's younger sister's kids who were slightly older than me, they had started to go to college, but we didn't see enough of them. I didn't know, I didn't ever ask them anything about college. We were all still too young. But, so it was a big deal for me then first to go to college, and I didn't realize it until later. So, you know, I'm gonna, I'm looking around at which colleges to go to. Long story short, I went to the University of Richmond, so it was down south, or just across the Mason-Dixon mm -hmm. line. Right. <laughs> uh, I don't know. There's some people that say it's not South, but it's capital of the South. It was. Mm -hmm. um, and it was actually 70% of the students were from the Northeast, okay. which is, I guess, not what I was expecting. I mean, I probably read that somewhere, but it was people from, you know, Philadelphia, New York, Baltimore, Washington, D.C., Massachusetts. That was interesting. Um, but it was an isolated campus, so it was not in the middle of downtown Richmond. It was slightly outside, so... Everything occurred there, um, and it was nice. I mean, met a lot of nice people, had a good experience, but coming from the city, I, I felt a little isolated, um, but it was good and, and made really great friends from that time. Um, but it, wasn't, it was also not as diverse as I wanted it to be. Okay, so it was mostly white. It was mostly white. Okay. And with my roommate, 
of four years who was Jewish, so I got to spend a lot of time with him, and, and his parents are great, and I learned a lot about a lot more about the Jewish faith because I had lots of Jewish friends when I was uh, growing up in Philadelphia. But you know, he would they would always invite me to Passover or, or or something. They would and and I just learned a lot about the not the faith of Jewish people, but how they interact, which was great. Uh, I always liked that something like that. You know, when you learn something new from someone else, but. There weren't, you know, we, it's not that they didn't have any African-American people at my school. There were some there. A lot in the athletic programs, a lot, they were extremely bright. But like we had a fraternity system, okay? And so when I joined this fraternity system, it was, uh, it had, you know, the, like I said, you're isolated. So at one point in the 60s, I think, they had built these lodges, okay? So that's where you would go. At maybe way back in the day, in the 30s, they used to be dorms, and, 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 and so you'd live there, but most, almost all of you couldn't do that. So I ended up at this one fraternity, and they were known uh, kind of, they were really nice guys, but they were known as the drug fraternity, you know. But I didn't do any of that stuff. And, and the people who were one year before me also, and they were really the, you know, cool, the music they liked was good, and they were diverse or diverse-minded. So I joined them, and that was fun, and then, you know, but then as we, is you get in there and you go a year in or two, you know, like, how can we get more people, of a diverse people? Mm-hmm. So I remember there was this one guy, and he was much older than us. He was like 25, but he was an ROTC, African-American guy, and he came to the fraternity, and so I rushed him, meaning, I, you know, you should come, you should join us. So I remember when and it was time to pick the people who would join. You get in and you, and you have these meetings, and and then it's when you learn about your fraternity brothers. Okay. And I'm not going to say who the... Okay, right. The good thing is, and I mean it, that everyone was like, yeah, we really like XXX. A couple of guys are like, you know, you learn they're from some place, frankly, the Deep South or whatever, and stuff comes out. But he made it in. And then I was uh, his, one of his big brothers. And the interesting thing was, I mean, I, I really liked him, and I'm so happy that he joined... But then you learn a lot about him, too. And, and he told me one day, he said, Greg, I, I don't know how to drive. I said, what? He said, I don't know how to drive. Because, and he had to go to these ROTs. And he said, I was taking the bus and this and that. And he was living off campus. I had no idea. You know, he was 25 years old. He was four or five years, six years older than me. I don't know. So I said, listen, I'll teach you how to drive. Because I had my grandfather's car uh, there for a little while, this... Uh, 79 Olds Cutlass. Okay. Okay. So it was easy to drive. It from boat, yeah, yeah, yeah. you know, a little boat. Um, so it took him out to drive. And then finally I took him to the driving school, the, the light where he get his license. So, and he got it. And then, and I remember that. And he remembers that. And, you know, stuff like that sticks with you. Right. Are you and still in contact with this guy? By any chance? It was, it was way pre internet. Um, I remember one time in Washington, DC, I ran into him, uh, in, uh, what is the whatever the train station is there, Union Station. Uh, he was going somewhere with a group of friends, and I was going with my mother somewhere. Uh, and I, I think I took his phone number, and I think I called him once or twice. But then, you know, unfortunately, right. some you people will pop up if you look, and some people, you right. know, fall into the cracks. Right. Wow. <laughs> anyway, it was uh, important experiences, you know. So going through college, what did yeah. you major in? Uh, in the end, I majored in economics. Mm-hmm. And I, um, uh, what else? Design. I took, it wasn't a major. It was kind of, I spent a lot of the extra credits I could 
do in design and art. I was but just design, interested. The car design. No, they didn't have car design. So they okay, had so like the theory of design okay, or right. architecture. Or I took uh, newspaper layout design when they're still doing everything. Right. basically pre, just pre-computer. Right. So you learn how to do it by hand and then transfer it into right, the exactly. very early, you know, floppy disk, right. digital era stuff. It, it, but it was good. I mean, it gave you some basics. Right? Give you the basics. Yeah. So when did you finally, eventually, when you got out of college, when did you get to do what you wanted to do? So that was, um, so I, I, you know, you know that you're going to get out of school and you're not going to be right where you need to be. And you graduated with what? With a what? What degree? Uh, uh, Bachelor of Economics. Economics. Yes. Okay. So I almost immediately, I, I, I knew I wanted to go to grad school. I knew I had to go to grad school to attain what I wanted to do. Like I said, I wanted to be a car designer, so I was looking at all this. And you still had that passion. Oh, you know, I mean, stuff it doesn't leave me. I okay. Mean, you know, if still, if I could do it, I would probably do it. But I, uh, there was the Art Center for Design in Pasadena, which is the car design uh, school, at least in North America. Um, Royal College of Art in London, but you needed to have portfolio. I mean, I was trying to develop a portfolio, but I just couldn't get there. So I realized I'm probably not going to make it as a car designer, but I also liked cars and the concept of cars and the, the business of cars. So, like I said, I always wanted to be in the car business and do something international. You know, you, you know, I read a lot. I spend a lot of time with many different types of people, and my mother spent a lot of time with her job with good housekeeping. She was international affairs editor, so she got to go, you know, we, we never traveled anywhere, frankly, as a family, because we didn't have the funds to do that, but she would go as, actually, as international affairs editor and public member of the Foreign Service. So she would get to go on these trips, and, and her role was to uh, work with women in other countries, and then report on that for her job. So she went to more than 100 countries, 120 mm -hmm. or something like that. But she came back and would always tell me what she liked and didn't like about you know, whatever country she went to. And I mean, I mean, she went everywhere. So she said, you know, Japan is really wonderful. Okay, so she had been to Japan before me. We talked about it. She knew I liked cars. She knew I liked Japanese cars at the time. At the same time, my, my roommate my, from school, my four-year roommate in, in the University of Richmond, also went one semester to Osaka. Kansai Daigaku. Okay. Uh, and so he came back and wow, all these, I mean, so, so all these great experiences I was hearing. So it started to shape kind of what I wanted to do, what I wanted to do. So at the time uh, for grad school, there were the beginnings of the International Business Graduate School programs starting. One of them was Thunderbird in Arizona, but another one that really interested me was uh, University of South Carolina for the MIBS program, MIBS, Master of International Business Studies. And the reason it interested me was it's a, if you don't know a language and it's a difficult language, you have to do it for three years. So typically grad school is two years, but this is three years. But not that I wanted to go to school longer, but they taught you the language and they brought you to the country and they, you had to work in an internship. Mm -hmm. So I'm like, wow, that's, that's, you know, if you're going to do it, that's the way to do it, right? Uh, so I did that. I joined the uh, University of South Carolina. First thing you have is an intensive summer of language. We knew no Japanese, zero. Arigato, konnichiwa, mm. and that was it. No, the name of this program, MIBS, M-I-B-S. It's now. Okay. Been, they still do it? Well, MIBS itself has been merged into the Darla Moore School of Business, 
which is a great business school at the University of South Carolina. They, um, my graduation year 91, they achieved number one overall international business school program, U.S. News and World Report, which is great, and they continue to do that for many, many years, and still do that with Darla Moore School of Business, I think, for undergrad, uh, if I remember correctly. Yeah. So anyway, so that got me to Japan. I had to learn the intensive language the first summer, and then we continued it on while we're doing our MBA portion in the middle of the school year, then a second intensive summer, and then based upon how you did there, you know, I think we had, I don't remember, maybe nine or ten people in our class in the Japanese track of MIDS program. I mean, they had German, they had Russian, they had everything else. Uh, and you, you work on this, and you had to take these tests at the end, and if you were in the top four, you would get to go to Waseda University, and then everywhere else would go to ICU to uh, continue learning Japanese and business and all that stuff. So I was lucky enough to work hard and get into Waseda, which is great. I mean, I just, you know, I thought how that many, would be... How many of the group has gone into four, Waseda? Four. four of you. Of how many? How many people were totally... Uh, it, like I said, it was about nine, nine I want to say. But, you know, we all, everyone was at a, a pretty good level. In reading and writing. Reading and writing. Oh yes, yes, we had to do the. You had to do the kanji. You had to, you know, you, we were at that point. There was actually a, a, a <laughs> business Japanese set of textbooks that were developed. I right. want to say by Nissan. Uh -huh. Okay, so we were using those, um, which is great. And then uh, we, you know, you, you can only do so. I think you can only do so much outside of the country. So when we landed in Japan, we were uh, well grounded in terms of good basics, able to read and write to a certain level, but then it's, you know, you get thrown into everything like you know, and it really it shoots it's, up. Right, right, it shoots up, yeah. It shoots but up. first of all, what you're being taught isn't necessarily what people are saying. Uh, yeah, I mean, you difference. realize that the but, business Japanese right, isn't going to work on the street, no. <laughs> or vice versa. Some things you don't want to say from the street and you're talking to your boss. But. But did you have any Asian friends, any Japanese friends? Uh, oh, yeah. Uh, like, like I like I say, going back to the that public school in Philadelphia, the spoke uh, Japanese. I mean, not the oh, American uh, Japanese. Oh, at I'm home they about... did, but I mean, I, I never you never think of it. We had a we had a my father had a really close Japanese friend, Mr. Tanaka, mm -hmm. uh, and the reason I remember him is super cool guy in Philadelphia. I didn't know so much about him, but he had a Porsche three five six. You remember? Okay. Oh, like I said, I I know cars. I can look and over then, and just look at the right, headlights. You know, I know what they right are. Right it's right. just a strange thing. So he had this Porsche three five six. And wow, that is so cool. But he was he was cool, cool cat. You know, just just didn't say much. Just look at you and right. you know that's all he needed to do. And but he and my dad were very close friends, and he had a family. But what I remember was his wife and daughter or kids were kidnapped, and he never saw them again. Don't say that. Oh, yeah, yeah. So I remember no, that distinctly. Whoa, yeah, yeah, whoa, yeah. whoa, whoa, whoa. Really? Yeah, yeah. You know, with the internet and everything now, we're all very aware of these things happening all the time, but they happened Wife the and his child were both yes, kidnapped. Yes, Never saw them again. In Philly? In Philly, yeah. Yeah. I, you know, I, I had to look deep and far you, to find that Were you really young when that happened? Oh, yeah. I mean, that, my father was still alive, right, so, right, it was right. so before so I was to be, 10. Wow. So anyway, so that started it, and then in, um, in South Carolina, there was uh, actually many Japanese students coming to learn English or coming to the, the, the undergrad school. I'm trying to remember. We, I don't 
think we had any Japanese students in the grad school at that time. Um, but there were in previous years. But I'm just wondering, did you have any that you, no, that were your friends that you oh, yeah, actually yeah, yeah. talked so, on a regular basis? So we had these, so these, you know, we were quickly got in touch with the Japanese community in the University of South Carolina. Once you, okay, right. Once you got and in they the, became our speaking partners, they became you. our friends, okay. our drinking buddies, and we still meet today in Japan because m- many of them have moved back here. In fact, one of them lives right next door to the tech. <laughs> that must be This mean. is, I mean, uh, you know, what I learned is... Is he a know, member? Of, is he a member he's not. And I'm like thinking, why aren't you... you remember, he, 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 he speaks English fluently. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And he's a... What is he? He's a CEO for a, like a, a Swiss yeah. metals company or something. Anyway. Wow. Okay, so you come over, you come over here, you go to Waseda. You're just going to be there for a year? Uh, yeah, it was a year in Waseda. Okay. And then we had to go to a, a, an internship. So, as I said, my goal was cars and international. Unfortunately, my school did not have an internship or a relationship with a company that was in the motor industry. So uh, they had lots of great internships in other manufacturing industries, uh, good relationships with certain um, U.S. or European companies here, and a lot of relationships with finance-related companies, specifically banks. So they said, well, Greg, you know, we don't have the automotive. What else would you like to do? Mm. Mm. And that's tough. I mean, there's one, number one, and you know, everything else is kind of down here. I like music. So they said, okay, you will be the one to go to Sony. And, you know, everyone else, wow, you're, gonna get, you're the one that gets to go to Sony, blah, blah, blah. Or, you know, at least I think they thought that. Um, but I was intent. I was going to get on the ground. And I started looking around and talking to people, alumni. There was uh, one alumnus in particular who worked for a uh, supplier. So he knew all of these people. So he started to introduce me to Toyota, Honda, Nissan. So you go and you explain, this is the program you're in, you know, and it's, the, it's 1990, I guess, at the time. So there's still an end of the bubble. There's still, you know, all these companies are doing very, very well. All of them are like, yeah, we'd be interested. Uh, so then it was a matter of, well, where? Because I was in outside of Tokyo at the time, going to school, uh, commuting in, and I'm like, well, I kind of want to stay in Tokyo. Couldn't see, you know, Nagoya or Tochigi or something like that as being where I needed to be. So, so I, 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 and Nissan, I like Nissan a lot at the time. So uh, they accepted the internship and I went there. I told, I told my, my teacher, my sensei, Sakaki Bara sensei, I said, well, I hate to tell you this, but um, uh, I'm going to go to to Nissan to do my internship. You know, the, the tension because Sony was prized um, internship and a good relationship. And I'm like, well, you know, and I had already checked around and there was another friend of mine who was interested to go there. And so he went there and actually, you know, he did very well afterwards. Maybe I should have gone and done my <laughs> Sony internship. But I got to do uh, motor and, yeah. and yeah. And then we had a relationship now with the school in Nissan. So for years after that, there were, Interns, 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 mm-hmm. and that was also interesting. And so, and the, and Nissan wanted to do something. So, so what happened after Nissan? What'd you do? So then I, you know, you have to go back to University of South Carolina. We had one semester of final classes. I think we had no Japanese at the time, just focused on papers and things for the MBA side of things. We did that, and um, Nissan had Nissan offered me a job in Japan. Toyota offered me a job in Detroit. I did not want to go to Detroit, so uh, I went to Nissan. 
And then uh, I came back to the same place, which was the technical center, which is in Atsugi. So it's not even in Tokyo, Tokyo proper, right. uh, but it was great because uh, you know you're you're a bit away from the gaijin ghetto, so to speak. So I wasn't using English that much, um, and I lived in a small town, Honatsugi, at first, and Isehara, and I really enjoyed that, you know, uh, that experience, which was, you know, other friends of mine, luckily, got to come back and either as an expat or whatever here in downtown Tokyo. So, you know, it was nice to come in town and, and uh, crash at their place when you go out to Rapungi or whatever it is on certain weekends. Right. But on the other hand, I, you know, you, you got deeper into the Japanese language and culture and maybe being outside. That's for sure. That's for sure. So how long did that last? Uh, I was um, at Nissan until 19, the very end of 1995, and then I moved to Ford of Japan uh, in Yokohama. I was working for the part side. Uh, to I was told you would develop half of it, half of the time would be working with Japanese companies in Japan, and half of it was to work on Southeast Asia. In the end, I was 100% focused on Southeast Asia, um, basically strategy, business development, and I was going back and forth to you know all of these interesting countries, and that that was great. I mean, you get to be based here. And then at one point, you know, the boss said, "Well, you know, Greg." You know, I like your strategy, blah, blah, blah. We want you to move to Singapore. And at the same time, I remember I was distinctly talking to, I had, someone had called me from Deutsche Bank, and a really nice guy who was head of equities. And he really wanted to recruit me to go over and work with them because, you know, a Japanese-speaking person who understood the motor industry, there was a lot going on with M&A, like with Daimler and Chrysler and all, you know, so I, he was... I was just being pursued, and but then the boss was like, "Okay, what about Singapore?" And I kind of went back and forth, and I decided to move to Singapore with Ford. Um, and it was myself, still a single guy, and then I took a Japanese guy working for Ford of Japan to do marketing with me as we went. And the intent was to build up the parts business because Ford Parts was going to eventually become what is now Vistion. So. We had to diversify away from Ford, but also still keep the Ford business. So I was there, and I was talking to you know Toyota, Nissan, um, Proton, which is a Malaysia uh, national car, uh, Peridua, uh, and others. Uh, it was really interesting. But I was also doing a lot of work for Ford and for Mazda, which were tied up at the time. Mm-hmm. And um, and then Ford bought into Volvo, so I was doing an probably 50% of my work for the Ford family. Uh, and we, I started a, I started a mm, plant in the Philippines that was doing suspension. Are you married at this time? Now? No, 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 not yet. You're still single. Yeah, okay. yeah, yeah. Flying, flying around. So you went to, so you went to the Philippines? I was based in Singapore and, but I was flying out of, I mean, there wasn't any business really in Singapore. It was just right. Ford already had a, a, a two-man show there, so we, I just joined okay. them because they had the office space. Um, so the Philippines project was to support mainly Ford and Mazda, who were developing pickup trucks and other things in the region, ASEAN, the Southeast Asian nations. They had trade agreements that if you build products and parts inside, the price would be really low. So this was the strategy. Let's sell into Ford and Mazda, 
and and uh, the key was the fuel pump because mm -hmm. no one else was localizing a fuel pump. So the belief was that we would have a good heads up on some of the competition. So mm -hmm. we, I did that. I realized that parts really though that's not why I did this. I'm a car guy. I'm not a parts guy. So and also I, to be very honest, Singapore is a lovely country, but mm, it was too. I had island fever, you know. That's interesting, right? Because it is it, just right there. And it's, it's then you have the outside, right? It's like Disneyland for adults. Very sculpted and clean, and no sure. mosquitoes, and good food, and you know, I it just it was. I, I like the the city life of uh, of Tokyo, which is very diverse. Anyway, so I came back to Japan, and I was working for a Nissan company doing. Like I said, I always liked the design side, and these guys had contacted me beforehand, and it was to do research, um, to support research that was done for Nissan, but also to support research that was done for, we worked on Ford, General Motors, Suzuki, Audi, and then some non-car businesses. I remember distinctly working for a certain uh, high-end uh, cosmetic brand because I wanted to understand why Japanese uh, had this 10 or 12-step process for applying makeup versus U.S., which is like two, and Korea at the time was like four. But this is, is money-making. I, I didn't know that. Uh, I didn't know either until that time, really? so you learn a little something. So right? when the Japanese put on makeup, they really put it on. They put uh, on the, the time now. I don't, you know, post-COVID, who knows, but I, I still think it's a well, I know they do the eyes now because post-COVID <laughs> had their eyes done. No, but it, it, you really learn, again, it's the business end of things mm -hmm. and the cultural end of things with mm -hmm. this. Um, and then I joined... Uh, Daimler Chrysler, um, who needed wanted someone in advanced product planning at Mitsubishi. They had a they own thirty four percent of Mitsubishi, so I went there, and that was really really interesting because you get to apply everything that I had learned about uh, the business in Japan and culture and language, uh, and my desire to be in you know new car development mm. concepts, um, and it it was. Really interesting time. I so really like the people getting there. Closer now. Well, yeah, and, and it was Germans, Americans, Japanese, and others working there. Mm -hmm. Of course, there was always. It was interesting for me to watch the. I wouldn't call it the, just how the relationship was developing between the Germans and some Americans who were there and the Japanese. You know, it was a little bit of tension, but Nissan had already started their partnership with Renault and. Mm -hmm. So there was, was some that precedent. Carl, that was Carlos Ghosn's time. Yeah, so it was early. Right. Um, and we worked on some interesting things. And frankly, some of those people from Mitsubishi have, are very, very close friends. Mm -hmm. okay. uh, and then Mitsubishi and Daimler divorced. And while I was at Mitsubishi, I was working on, of course, advanced product planning. But I was the deputy Mitsubishi strategy uh Daimler level strategy representative. So my boss, uh, who is German, who came from Mercedes, was in charge of marketing, which includes product planning. That's German uh, way of doing, which is great. And he was the representative to the. It was a group. It was really interesting. They, there was the board at Daimler, and they would meet. I can't remember once a month maybe, and they would review all of these projects and things. Um, but before everything went to the board, they had to be reviewed by this group that was in each of the Daimler companies. You know, is it thorough enough? Does it include the information you need? Is it relevant? Should we even present it to them or not? Mm -hmm. And that was 
wow, that was great because you got the diversity of what you saw, uh, what was coming across and the way of thinking and also uh, kind of honed my strategic thinking a bit in terms of presentations. How and, often would they do this? Um, once a month. Once a month was the board meeting, so I can't remember. It was a week or, or so before that we would have a, a deputy meeting or let's call it the strategic support group meeting. Mm -hmm. um, and we would discuss what needed to, what we should do or not do and how to improve a paper. And then the other thing was out of the board, if they just decided to do a project, they would come back and would ask if it involved your company in the Daimler portfolio, you would be a representative then. So even though I was working for Mitsubishi, I was working on, for example, there was a, uh, a cross-platform team to look at how to build a joint uh, full-size SUV between Daimler, Chrysler, and Mitsubishi. So Mitsubishi had the Pajero, uh, Chrysler had the Grand Cherokee, and there was the M-Class that was at, um, at the time at, at, at Mercedes. So that was super interesting, and you're, and you're working with uh, your colleagues from all of these companies and you know their thought processes and their branding and how to keep certain key things, and that was there. So what, anyway, was your, what was your job then, though? So my job was advanced product planning. So I was in, there to look outside of product planning, was to look at some other concepts. Uh, I worked on a different proposal for the Mitsubishi Evolution Wait, wait, so let me just try to put it in layman's yeah. terms. So you would get the product, you'd see what they'd already developed. Okay, how did, how did it go? No problem. So the advanced product, advanced product planning. planning was to, uh, a lot of special projects were to look at something outside of the approved cars or concepts to develop. So you had okay. certain cars that, you know, you, you make this, you have a replacement coming, it has a replacement coming, so you have your lineup. But then there's also advanced product planning is to take a look at things outside. What could be a new area to cover, a new type of vehicle to make that we don't oh. have? Oh, okay. okay. So that's how the SUV oh, yeah. came into yeah, life because so, uh, yeah. there was no such thing. Well, the SUV, that, that, was, that was part of that strategic board that would look at, um, how do I put it, uh, how to build something between three companies in that case, Daimler, Chrysler, and Mitsubishi. But my regular job was working on things, new, new concepts, or taking a look at some possibilities. So example was um, SUVs at the time, this was 2003, 2004, were uh, obviously doing very well. But then the next thing was compact SUVs, right. mid-sized SUVs. Right. Right. So they had, you know, Mitsubishi had some in the past, but it was, not, it was out of the portfolio. There's nothing there. And they were looking for something to make money, obviously. Um, and I was first asked, interestingly enough, uh, the chairman of Daimler had come to the Tokyo Motor Show. He had seen a certain concept that Mitsubishi had put forward. He said, That's cool. Can we make it? He just asked that question. So that came back to my boss, who then said, Greg, could you take a look at this? So it started you know, that way. I mean, can you make it? I mean, frankly speaking, that concept was a small kind of sporty hatchback car, but really small, subcompact. And it didn't really have a, a big following, meaning that the, the volume numbers throughout the world were relatively small. The profit was low. But it kind of evolved a little bit. I said, well, why don't we use that for the Mitsubishi Evo in a slightly bigger platform? But the one that they were planning was 
had just grown in size over the years. And so, you know, we had part of the mythology is we challenged for the, the championship of the WRC, World Rally Championship. Okay, so we had won it a few years. Um, but and this, that's the word. Uh, how many days is that rally? Oh, uh, well, it's different races throughout the world. Yeah, throughout the world. It was it was a big thing, particularly Japanese cars like Subaru. And didn't and they stop that now? It stopped now. Because right? I remember they used to have that quite often. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And these guys, they have two man team, and they go throughout the night, and they come back. And these yeah, you, it's, 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 some, it's super fun. And Africa, it's, or it's, it's everywhere. Yeah, I mean, no, everywhere. It's yes. everywhere. I mean, especially right. in Europe, it's very big. Uh, even in Nordic countries, so it's in but snow I, and but stuff. I, I remember hearing something. I've yeah, been there's, that they there's, stopped it or something. I, I, to be honest, I, I, I've been I paying know. more attention to F1 okay. since then, as you know, uh, with Ferrari and Austin. Right. But, the, but the point is um, that, so we looked at this, the, the car was growing, so we were probably not going to be in a, in a position to win any races. Okay, so what if we did a shorter wheelbase version of the, the pla this core platform that we had for multiple vehicles in Mitsubishi and Chrysler and made that the, a smaller wheelbase base for this car, which could have a normal version and an Evo version. And then that itself wasn't even enough for a good business plan. So I thought, hmm, why don't we do, use the same platform and do a small SUV? And there were not a lot of small SUVs out yet in the world. And when you added that to it, now suddenly Europe was interested in it. U.S. had some interest in it. For sure, Japan was interested in it. Southeast Asia was interested in it. Maybe China. Boom, 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 boom. The business case was starting to look really good. And you get this small car off of it. Um, long story short, Mitsubishi and Daimler divorced in 2004. Um, so at the very end, as they were looking through, and I say they, meaning, listen, all of the Germans, Americans, and Japanese, when, when that happened, I mean, it's a long story. Someone will write a book, but I, you know, everyone wanted success for the company, for Mitsubishi. So mm -hmm. everyone got together. Well, what could we do out of this list of, I think it was like 38 or 30-something 30 cars that were potential projects? What should we keep? There's like almost no money left, but we need to have something. And they kept the small... SUV, okay. What is it? Which one was it? The one that I had proposed. Okay. They did not change the Evo. They, the Evo that came out was because it was already deep in development and things, but they kept the small SUV, and they made it, and it became in Japan the RVR. A long time ago, there was an RVR. They stopped. There was nothing. Then this came back as a as a small compact SUV. It was sold in the U.S. as Outlander Sport. It was sold in in Europe is the ASX, if I remember correctly, but and it did very well. What was it, it here? What was it here? RVR. RVR. That's why I'm seeing some of those. Yeah. Yeah, and they still RVR. use the platform. It's called. Yeah. It's now morphed a bit. It's called the um, Eclipse Cross or something like that. Mm -hmm. But anyway, that was fun. Um, and then, uh, so then Daimler said, um, Greg. Next steps, you have two choices. One is to stay in Japan and work at Mitsubishi Fuso, which is the big truck company that they had purchased 89%, I think it was, after the fallout with um, Mitsubishi. Mitsubishi companies, um, purchased or received, I should say. And then, um, or you could, we have a new project in China that was to start up the Dodge brand and, and Chrysler brand and revive the Jeep production plant. The first foreign production car plant that was in China was the 
AMC Jeep plant. And it was started up, but then it, they just never, ever, ever made anything new. So they're making, you know, mid-80s Jeep Cherokees there. But you're allowed two partners in China. So we had one with, with the AMC, with the Jeep plant, Beijing Jeep plant. So we needed to think of, my role was help with product planning. So what product should we do for them? And sign contracts. And then let's find a partner to do Chrysler and Dodge products like minivan and other things. That was really, really exciting, really crazy, amazing, wild, scary sometimes experiences. I got to work with one of the guys that was on that strategy board for the Chrysler side that I was on that would review everything. So that was good. And, you know, a super smart guy. He's currently probably the number one foreign automotive person uh, in China. He left Chrysler in 2009 or 10 or something like that. But he's, he went on to decide, he decided, I'm going to stay in China, learn Chinese. And he started his own consulting company. And he's on CNBC and <laughs> CNN. And we, we still talk and, frankly, do some business. Uh-huh. Uh, but I have lots of respect for him. You met him in the car business. Okay. Yeah. But anyway, the team was there in China. And we had to run around and find who could be partners. And, uh, you know, my job within that was to what is the car that we would build there what is the spec what is the cost what is the partner's input so i would always meet with the product group from xyz companies to get there and then finally in the end you know we would put the product side together the sales side the marketing side whatever and that would form a contract that we would sign with beijing jeep or with um, in the end it was southeast motors uh, in fujian province so that was great. Um, at Did, the same, you huh? stayed there. You stayed in China all this time. Yeah, I was. I, I, I was part of this small team. Uh, it was interesting because I was. I left Tokyo uh, when I was at Mitsubishi, and I was told, "Yeah, you need to go to Detroit while we start this team up and just get to know everyone, and we do the business plan. You'll be there three months." Okay, so I was in temporary housing, um, and then it was at the time that I was about to get married, so my wife to be had come. And, Long story short, I was there a year, and uh, frankly, I, you know, I don't know. In Detroit, Detroit is not was not my. Okay, I got you, yeah, yeah I, I, it was interesting. You know, it was always <laughs> any experiences was important, but it was not my favorite place. I mean, I was really looking forward to go to Beijing right. at the time. Right. So anyway, uh, during that time, they were putting together the rest of the team. I can't remember. It's probably about ten people. So it was a Skunk Works group inside of uh, uh, Chrysler to do this. Um, and I stayed with one or two other people at first in Detroit, um, basically, because the other team was going over there to, to kick things up. But I was there to work on the strategy side and help to show the CEO of Chrysler what's happening with the China project. So I would be physically there while the team would be in China and we would have video meetings or conference calls, I guess, at the time uh, with the CEO. And I would be there and take him through physically the the presentations we made and helped to explain why we wanted to do something like, oh. and that was fun. I mean, you know, so maybe still that, a relatively young guy, and I'm, and uh, but you had a lot of calls and a lot of time to do. That. I mean, it was it was uh, you, know, you to devote know, a lot know. of time to the job. You had to, yeah, yeah, yeah. especially because I the time in that. China right. is 
like it is here. So, you, so you were up opposite. at night talking to these guys, well, going through I was all in the, the states and everything. You know, the CEO is That's not going to be up at night. The CEO is not going to be up at no, night. No, so so you were up at night. I said I was up at night talking so to those guys. That's what I'm talking about. Yeah. But then when I actually physically moved to China, obviously, you know, you're you're working, at least meeting wise, on Detroit time. Lots of meetings, one a.m. Oh. Whatever. So it was, it was harder in being while you were in China than it was while you were in Detroit. Uh, it was different. I wouldn't say it's harder. Whatever. Uh, like I said, I was happy to be in Beijing because you know you're on the ground. You're 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 really understanding car industry in China, which is very different than Japan. Um, and I was you know when but I wait, made the t- choice real quickly. Yeah. In what way? Just one or two different things that are China is and probably still was and <clears throat> probably still is the wild wild east. Okay. I mean anything goes. So. Is, I've done business in China, so I know. Yeah, and I mean, and, and, you know, the, the <clears throat> unexpected really happens. Um, you know, just crazy things. Okay. But my my point is, is that you know, it was great experience. Uh, you know, you, I met really, really lovely friends from China that I'm still in contact with. Uh, again, very different than Japan, very different than Southeast Asia, which I'd worked at before. Um, and very exciting. I mean, there was lots of activity, lots of there still is lots of activity. So you know, it's it's amazing. And rem, right now in China, what's coming out in terms of concepts and things reminds me of Japan in the eighties, nineties. You know, we've kind of unfortunately lost the life here. Yeah, it appears it has, but I don't think it has. I, I guess the the important thing was, and I'll try to keep it short, is that um, I was in Taiwan with the, when I was working with Chrysler uh, for China. And I get a call from an ex-colleague from Mitsubishi. And he had gone to Ferrari in the U.S. And he calls me and he says, Greg, hey, how are you doing? Hey, what's happening? I haven't spoken to him in a while. Hey, I'm at Ferrari in the U.S. The guy who's in Ferrari in the U.S. is about to move to Ferrari Asia Pacific in Shanghai. Uh, and they're looking for a guy who knows Japan. Okay. And um, at the time, uh, Chrysler had its bankruptcy uh, and was uh, about to be purchased by a hedge fund. Lots of unknowns going on, even what's going to happen with the China team and the China business. It wasn't quite there yet, but I, you know, you could, you could foresee some of the stuff. But on the other hand, I wasn't necessarily convinced on Ferrari because here's a really small company. Uh, like I said, I love cars. Making a $300,000, $400,000 sports car it's not that difficult making a ten thousand, twenty thousand dollar car that has all these things. That's a challenge. So that's what I was doing, so I wasn't convinced immediately. But you know, more calls, going back to the U.S. for a vacation. I met with a guy who was going to go over then to to Shanghai, and I was really impressed. You know, he explained what it is that he needed to do. Uh, you know, Japan had been a market. For 40 years was strong, but the rights for the importation were owned by uh, the a, a Japanese company. Frankly, it's a Hong Kong Japanese company. Was um, so we don't know what to do, and uh, we want to establish our own company. And oh, and plus, you know, we have the rest of Asia Pacific. So I joined. Long story short, I joined Ferrari in Shanghai, which is the was the Asia Pacific uh, office as the marketing strategy, market strategy <clears throat> person. Um, 70% of what I needed to do was, what do we do for Japan? How do we take it over? And how do we make it work? 
So that was a great project. I mean, literally, I was based in Shanghai. So I moved from Beijing to Shanghai, which was also interesting. I liked Shanghai a bit better than Beijing. And uh, was flying often twice or three times a month from Shanghai to Tokyo in order to meet with the owner of the importation rights, mm-hmm. uh, but also to, you know, how do we set the company up? What's the plan? What's the strategy post setup? Blah, blah, blah. Finally, you know, we, in six months, seven months, eight months, I want to say, I mean, with lots of iterations working with the president of Ferrari because he was involved. He was on the board of Ferrari Asia Pacific. We all finally agreed on what it's going to be. And um, then that was in... Uh, but how, how did you get a, get the export rights away from... They still have the export rights, the people that had it before you came in. And we negotiated them away. away. Not away. We negotiated the turnover. They still are they still one are of the retailers of, of the retailers cars. now. Yeah. No longer the importer. No, no longer the importer. Okay. And I think, you know, at that time, I mean, Ferrari is probably one of the last, if not the last to be car company that, that took it over. So... You know, it was one of these things where it wasn't unexpected in the end from the importer at the time. Right. It was more a matter, of, frankly, of, okay, then knowing that, what's, what are we going to do going forward? Right. And that was sometimes tough. Um, but I, I think one of the things that I brought, hopefully there's lots of things I brought to this, but one of the key things I brought to the settlement, negotiation, whatever you want to say, is, you know, I was intent on making sure that Ferrari understood that the importer, which is, who is also the major retailer, should stay on as the retailer. You know, yes, there was 40 years of all sorts of relationships, let's say, mm-hmm. but there's no reason to take that away from them. They are, or were, let's say at the time, surely one of the best uh, dealer partners to have in, in, in the world, if not Japan. Especially for luxury cars. Especially for luxury cars. And it's important that you have trust and, and, and sincerity when you work mm-hmm. Anywhere, and particularly in Japan, I mean, I don't. There's no need for telling a fib or a lie. That's true. It's better to say exactly what it is, or say this is what we're thinking. Give me your Im- input, and then rework it. You know, all under the understanding that it has to work out. Did you guys have a big ceremony or something? Because you brought Ferrari to Japan. Well, Ferrari. The I mean, you there was the a dealer. press I mean, conference, right? Uh, frankly, and so in the in the end, the importer, the previous importer, and Ferrari uh, got together, and we had a press con- joint press conference. We announced what was going to happen, and then after that, we had to go together to rehomologate cars, go to the government to set this up, and you know there had never been that before. Everyone had a bad separation. There was right, Mitsuwa right. and Porsche. Yes, uh, you know, not Nobody to go into that, well, but right. it just. It never ended on a, hey, we're going to have a nice and still, wall-like still, and transition. And still work together, right. right. Um, and still work together. Right. Uh, so in the end, we did that. So I remember I, we went to the... Were you the president of... of, of did they make you the... Pre- what was your position? What were so you in the... Uh, I'll come to that in a second. Okay. But in the, in the end, you know, we went to the um, government agency to, to redo or re-homologate the cars under... Ferrari Japan's name, but we went with the previous importer. <laughs> they were like, wait, why is he here? We've never had this happen. We need to double check to make sure everything's okay. This is the Japanese side scene. Yeah, this is the government right. because, this you know, we're going in with our, the right. former importer and just wasn't, you know, we're buddy-buddy <laughs> at that right. time. Or What's going on here? Wait just a minute. <laughs> but anyway, so I'd done all of this uh, to 
helped to put the strategy uh, into place and you know worked a lot with my colleagues obviously in Ferrari worked a lot with the the importer at the time um, and then there was a matter of okay well who's gonna go do it because at that point they would actually had the joint press conference to announce things it was okay we will have Ferrari Japan set up in July of 2007 2008 sorry July of 2008 uh, meanwhile uh, in March of 2008, we formally had the, the legal company established, and uh, so the clock is ticking. Okay, there, there's a piece of paper, but we need a company. We needed people, so it was a matter of okay, well, who's going to go and do that? I was actually still—I mean, I'm still a new guy at Ferrari. I did not think that it was going to be me, frankly. I, I, I thought, okay, I just. My role was to create the strategy, set everything in motion, and maybe someone else would go do that. I, and, but then I was being told, well, maybe it's going to be you and this and that. Long story short, my wife, Japanese wife, we lived in Shanghai, was pregnant. And she was due to give birth in May of 2008. This is your first child. First child. So I told my boss, I said, look, I, I don't know. If you'd like me to go and, and do this and set it up, I'm happy to do it. Because he was kind of saying that. Uh, I just need to know relatively quickly, because I, I will not travel from, if my wife is in Shanghai, I will not travel from Shanghai to, from two weeks before that and two weeks after that. You need to know that. But that's also the time they needed to set up the company, okay, May of 2008. So in the end, he said, yes, okay, you go and do it. So literally, I left my wife for the time being, pregnant in Shanghai, a couple of bags. Uh, gosh, I can't even remember where I stayed temporarily. Um, and then I remember Jetra would offer a free... Uh, office for a few months to set up a startup company. We were a startup company, so we, I signed up for that, which is great. They gave you uh, a desk of a secretary, mm -hmm. and then you know we used that for meetings. And I literally had to hire like twenty people in two months. So we did all that. Meanwhile, my wife came over and joined me in Japan. What was your position, though? Uh, it was um, essentially head of Ferrari Japan. Okay, so you were the president. Gotcha. So then. We um, hired, I, I had all these interviews, so you had to meet people quick. And by then, yourself? Well, by myself, I had, to, I had to filter who would then go on to meet with the guy who's head of Asia Pacific, et cetera, et cetera. I mean, we were, the pace we were moving at was unbelievable. Uh, but that's for art, you know, that's the, that's the high end luxury uh, performance business. Same with Austin Martin, right? So my. Which my, you're the president of now. Yeah. Right. So the, the point is, I guess I like to move fast. I don't know. Yeah. I like to beat myself to death with lots of projects. We got all these people ready. Uh, they joined June. Everyone was in by June 1st of 2008. We had to take the business over July 1st of 2008. So we got everyone doing all this training. We're, you know, blah, 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 blah. And then it all went okay. I mean, there were little hiccups here and there, but July 1st, you know, we transferred and took over the business and we started it up and you know, we were based in Ark Hills and temporary offices, Regis. And then we found an office in Rapunga Hills. We moved there, right in the move, middle of the Lehman shock, the global Great Recession. That was uh, crazy. And we also launched the Ferrari California, which was a brand new category for them. You know, there was a lot of everyone's anxious to see how it was going to do. In the end, it did very well. Um, yeah, so... Long story short, uh, so I was there at that time. Uh, so I ran 
Ferrari Japan for a couple of years. Uh, we built it up. We had a strategy how to get to TBD within 10 years, TBD volume, blah, blah, blah. They actually achieved that and they kept going. Uh, so 10-year plan, so that was through 2018, and they're still moving on, and I'm really proud of that uh, with those guys. How long did you stay with them? Well, I, How many I, years? So I left in, um, in spring of 2010 to go back to the States because my mother, who I explained, was, she was very independent. She was always very supportive of us going and doing our thing, but now she's in her 80s, and, and I... Mm -hmm. You know, I could sense something when I was talking to her, but one day she said to me, first time, I might need a little help. And my mother, who never says that, when she says that, I'm like, yeah, like the antennas just went off. You know, and I'm like, know. wow, I've been in Asia, what is it now, 20 something, 20 years or something like that. I need to get back. I mean, I, I, it just hit me like a brick. Anyway. So I returned to the U.S. Taking your wife with you. I took my wife and my newborn, newborn son because he was right. born in yeah. Japan just after we started, for our, or just before we started for our Japan, um, and we went back, um, long story short, I moved to LA because uh, my goal was I needed a place to bring my mother, then hopefully to uh, have a nice transition, because she was still living in Philly and it was cold and all that stuff, mm -hmm. um, and I didn't know anything about LA, but there was car business there, so I went to work again for Mitsubishi Motors there. Um, Long story short, my mom was a bit stubborn. She was not going to leave Philadelphia. I mean, that's, you know, older people are just want to hold on to what they their know. base. And they're right. a little bit of a, you know, just anxiousness about moving to a new place. Mm -hmm. And probably even with moving with us, or trying to figure out that. Um, long story short, though, she, uh, I then moved to Ferrari in the U.S. after that, you know, get a little closer. Uh, that they were based in New Jersey, so very close to Philadelphia. Um, she passed away in 2013, so I roughly had three years together mm -hmm. to support her. Uh, was there when she passed away with my brother. Um, really, one of the one of the points in life where you learn so much when you're with a parent, and you know, you're, the last two weeks it was tough because she was had lots of medical issues that just kind of came on all of a mm -hmm. sudden. Physically was there in the hospital all the time, uh, and then you know she passes away when you're there. So you you reassess, or maybe I should say, certain other lights go on in life, and you know then your priorities are sharpened again. And uh, um, anyway, with career-wise, um, I my wife <laughs> after being in New Jersey, freezing cold New Jersey, after my mother had passed away. Uh, she really wanted to get back to L.A. She was not so much a fan of the cold. And uh, I had been called by a company called Faraday Future, which is Chinese Apple car-like EV startup company. And it was an amazing uh, experience. Um, won't spend too much time with that because I was there. With them? How long were you with them? Uh, I was there a year. Okay. And frankly, I also joined with my previous boss from Ferrari. And we it was a completely different experience. I mean, really just... Learned a lot about Chinese startup management style. In the end, we, we, we all, meaning the executive team, there were eight of us or something, uh, chose to leave at the end of 2016 because of, let's just say, things we didn't agree with as a team that maybe could come back and bite us. Uh, we left. 
uh, and then with that person uh, we did a lot of consulting then with global luxury companies in primarily in the EV space and that was again a brand new experience a lot of fun because you know we, we work with can't mention them all a lot of people that are out there that are looking what to do to, with EV either they were a startup or they were an existing company needed some help how to refine the brand how to change the brand to it even from a product standpoint what to do blah 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 and then in 2020 uh, Maserati had reached out to me and said look you know we know you had been in Japan you know and Ferrari Japan and no Japan and we're also about to institute our EV program so would you like to come and run Maserati in Japan and at the time you know my mother had passed away um, then it's my wife and her parents are still very Genki here in Japan my two kids now we're at an age where, okay, maybe it's time to go to Japan, see the other side of the culture, spend some time with the grandparents and that side of the family, blah, blah, blah. So we made the decision, came back November of 2020. Actually, it took six months because of the COVID, waiting for the visa to come down. We came back, and that was interesting, um, at Maserati. Um, did a lot of work to, on the network side in particular. That was really interesting. And then I moved um, to Austin Martin last summer. As president. Yeah, and that was to work on, I mean, as I, you know, there's an awful lot of ex-Ferrari people who are now at Austin. And the goal for them is, you know, they're a 110-year-old company. Mm -hmm. And we want to be truly at the pinnacle of ultra-luxury. And we have in our sights, Big Red. You know, that's where we, we know we, we, we want to compete with them. Clearly, we're... We want to be firmly in F1. You know, we're a, we're a car company that has a vision of being the most desirable British ultra-luxury addictive performance car company in the world. So we're very clear on what that strategy then needs to be, both globally, locally, product-wise, branding, marketing. It's refine, 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 bring on a good team, and that's kind of what we're doing now. Greg, listen, you just had me like, <laughs> it's fantastic. No, no, no. I mean, it's, uh, no, no. Fun to it's talk been about. a long time too, because we. I, I loved everything you were talking about mm. and what you got into. I'd like to ask one last question before sure. we leave. If you go back into time, mm. <laughs> to everything you've done, where you are today, mm. and meet the younger Greg mm. to give him advice, how would Greg be, and what advice would you give him? Hmm. Uh, I would probably drop back to age nine, so a year before my father passed away, to just say, take advantage of more time with your with your father. It's important. Um, just knowing that. And um, what else? Other than that, I mean, I'll be honest. You know, I would not change anything. You gotta you gotta deal with life the way it comes to you. And and to be honest, half of the fun is the unexpected. I mean, some of it can punch you in the face but some of it can be really eye-opening and you know coming to Japan meet your wife you're gonna have your kids age 10 I had no idea I was gonna do it so in that sense yeah you don't want to change Great, thank you so much thank you it's been a pleasure mm -hmm. pleasure's all mine I want to thank all of you for watching this podcast make sure you press like and subscribe and remember it's all online so continue to reach for the stars because you're too blessed to be stressed.